next several weeks to talk about something that uh, the Bible says was written by the hand of God himself. Its principles governed the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Some argue that its principles molded American principles in government. Until recently, these laws hung on almost every American court, and uh, they even used to, be, uh, used to hang and be taught in schools. And these principles should still govern our lives today. Any, any, any guess as to where I'm going? The Ten Commandments. But do we understand the Ten Commandments? Do we know what they are? What did God intend for his people? They provide foundational words that speak universal truths. And foundations matter. Without a strong foundation, we fall for anything. And so over this series, we're going to look back at applying ancient laws to modern principles. That does not mean I'm going to tweak or shift it to fit our worldview. It simply means we're going to look through the modern lens at these ancient principles of how we can apply these without, of course, changing the Word of God and what he, what he meant there. And so we'll be using the Word of God first and foremost, but then as I often do on Wednesday nights, Principles for Life, I, I will often have a book supplement that I encourage you if you want to take a look. Um, we are going to be looking at a book called entitled 10 Words by Pastor L.J. Harry out of Ohio, which just uh, we had Brother Gavin Cole a couple weeks ago, and this happens to be his pastor there. And so... Um, just an excellent writer, excellent communicator. But I want to begin by looking at the Bible's account of these Ten Commandments. We're going to read the, read the New Living Translation. And starting at Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. He said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God before me or but me, he said. You must, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth, or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Man, I want that. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each, each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, daughters, male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living among you. For six days, the Lord made the heavens... In, in six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Then he said, honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land of, your, of the Lord your God that he's giving you. And then he says a couple of must-nots. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not cover your, covet your neighbor's house. You must not cover, covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So he, he lists these things out, and I think that some of those, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Don't murder. Well, we know what that is, okay? But what about some of this other stuff, and how do we apply it to today? And that's what we're going to do over these next several weeks. But tonight, I'm not going to cover all Ten Commandments in one night. Tonight, we will be looking at just the first three verses, just that first commandment, first of the Ten Commandments. 
as we launch into this new series, The Ten Commandments and Today. The Ten Commandments and Today. In week one, we're focusing just on number one. And if we could put that in one word, it's worship. Jesus, we love you, God. We are thankful, Lord, to be here tonight. I'm thankful for everyone who's here. Father, people who are watching online or maybe going to tune in later to the archived version of this sermon. And God, I just pray that you'd help me to, to just be anointed by you so that I can communicate the things that you've given me through study. And I would do that effectively and with your anointing and that you'd speak to your people so that we can be everything you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of our relationship with God and with each other. Whether we live for God and live well with one another relies heavily on the foundation of these commandments. When God was drawing the blueprints for his relationship with us, he took his time to make sure that we had the Ten Commandments. Imagine the background of what was happening at Israel. I, I, I like, especially on Wednesdays, I like if I'm going to teach, I want us to kind of understand the whole context of what was going on. Because otherwise we could just read one verse and start a whole new religion on it. And a lot of people have done that. And so we have to understand the context. And so they had just been delivered out of Egyptian slavery. Here they are. They're in the wilderness with probably over one, more than a million people. You ever tried to travel in a group? You got 12 people and you're like, hey, where'd you guys want to eat? Is this fine? You're like, imagine a million. Okay. Trying to book a flight with a million people, you know, they didn't, I know, I'm not dumb, I know they didn't have planes, but just imagine traveling with that many people. So they saw, now here they are, they're in the wilderness, probably more than a million people. They just saw one of the most amazing miracles that anyone could ever see. They walked up to the Red Sea, God literally parted the Red Sea, they walked through on dry ground, Egyptian army went in after them, and God put the sea back on top of them washed away their enemies and they got this and they just had this worship service and the bible records how they sang songs of worship as they watched the god throw the rider into the sea and all this incredible stuff and it starts to dawn on them we are never going to be slaves again we're never going to feel the sting of an egyptian whip on our back we're not going to watch helpless baby boys crying being thrown into a nile river and killed we are free. We are finally free after 430 years. And now they're at the foot of this mountain in the middle of the desert. And suddenly, in the middle of their celebration, Exodus 19 picks up and says, On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn. And the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. And he said, and the whole mountain shook violently. And as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. I want you to know that very soon, a trumpet's going to sound and God's going to speak again. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai, and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses climbed the mountain, and then the Lord told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. This massive 7,497-foot mountain is 
quaking and engulfed in smoke. The trumpet sounds, God starts to speak, and God's voice begins to thunder the Ten Commandments that he gives Moses, the ones we just read. These Ten Commandments are ten words that God spoke to Moses to teach him and the millions who followed him how to live. Because you think about it, they were in a, in a pagan nation for 430 years. Now you're free and in the middle of the wilderness, and people say, well, God's a God of law. Why would he put all those laws upon them? Well, they didn't even know how they were supposed to live. Well, where do we travel? Where do we live? How do, how do we dress? What do we eat? How do we keep things clean? What do we do? I mean, we have to know. So God says, I'm going to give you parameters. And Ten Commandments is part of the, the larger law of Moses. Moses' law actually had 613 commandments. Imagine what a series that would be. We could start that today and finish it up in 2028. But I feel like the Wednesday, Wednesday attendance would dwindle. I've kind, of, I've kind of picked something up in my years of pastoring that you can do well for about five weeks. After five weeks of the series, people are kind of like, are we still on this? The first four words that he gives us when the Ten Commandments, I'm breaking it down to one word. First four are how we reverence God. The last six are how we respect each other. God is just as interested in us being right with each other as he is in us being right with him. I know some would disagree with that. But he says, I'll boil the whole law down to one thing, love God and love others. It was always... Vertical relationship, horizontal relationship. So God gives these commands and he says, no other gods before me. No graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie and don't covet. And as God spoke, he wrote. Exodus 31, 18 says, when the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. That's, that's pretty amazing. Now on that mountain, God gave Moses the entire law, not just the Ten Commandments. However, these Ten Commandments, it, it appears that this is where he started. And I would say... It makes sense to me. God doesn't always make sense to me in what he does and his timing. But this one makes sense to me. This is where you start because, I mean, think about it. It's pretty tough to go any deeper in a relationship with God and with others if we can't get these things down. Like, there's no need to try to win someone to the Lord if you're trying to get into a relationship with his wife. That You see, that just... That's kind of common sense. If you're a lady, you, you, it, you know, you could say, I want to be a powerful woman of God. But if you're murdering people, that's not a good thing. So it seems like this is a good place to start. These laws are the foundation of humanity and, and our relationship, not only with God, but with other people. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, thousands of years later, he writes this, he says, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. 
And so you look at that, no doubt, probably someone in here, we, we look at the 10 and we say, you know, I've got a lot of them down, but I'm not perfect. Well, according to this, he says, well, you broke one, you broke them all. That's why we need the blood of Calvary. And so believers weren't even living under the Old Testament law, right? But in the New Testament, but, he, but here he is writing this and God chiseled these commands on tablets so they would be strong, so they would withstand the test of time. And then he actually took the commandments, the, tab, the tablets, of the tables of stone, and scripture talks about how they were placed in the bottom of the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, these things were meant to be preserved for all of time. And so God starts <clears throat> in giving these commandments, and he starts in the most important place. Number one, he says, let's talk about worship. Let's talk about worship. And in verse one, he says, going back, he says, God gave the people these instructions. He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. Think about it. <clears throat> Moses had no clue what was coming. I mean, we, we always have the luxury. Hindsight's always 2020. You know, we can read David's story and Solomon's story and Samson's story, and, and we can be like, what a bunch of morons. I can't believe they would do that. Well, yeah, we, the disciples, how did they not know he was Jesus? Some guy, there were people all over the place saying they were the, the Messiah. So you got to understand the context of what's going on. Moses, we understand the end of his story, but... He had just, he was, you got to remember, he was the timid one going, who am I? I can't. And God says, well, fine, take Aaron, your, your brother, and you go in there and, and then let's say, let my people go. And then Moses is kind of like scared to even go back in. Well, why would he be scared? Well, think about that. You kill an Egyptian, take off running, and get, God sends you back in to go to the place where you left as a fugitive. You'd be nervous too. And so he walks in, and, and, he, and he's kind of timid, and God manages to use him to deliver his people, take them out of 430 years of bondage. They get, to the, they get to this mountain. It's quaking. Everybody's freaking out, scared. Moses is like, yeah, you know what? I've seen this before because he got called from God on the side of a mountain from a burning bush that was burning but not being consumed. So this probably didn't freak him out as much as everybody else because he's like, oh, I, I was freaked out the first time I saw this, but I've already done seeing this a time or two. And so he's going, all right, I got to go talk to God, but he doesn't know what's coming. Like, is God going to tell me how to siphon water? Is God going to tell me how to read a map? I mean, like, it's not like you could go, hey, Siri, navigate to the promised land. Is she going to say something? Getting directions to promised land, Sue Branson. <laughs> We're heading to the promised land zoo in Branson. I heard Jesus was there anyway. I had no clue what she was going to say. That was awesome. Sometimes the best parts of the message are the impromptu parts. We're heading to the promised See, imagine. They would have ended up and they're like, this isn't the promised land. But they could, have hit, they could have hit Tanger Outlet Malls and Krispy Kreme Donut when they were done. Moses, he didn't know. He's like, am I how to read a map? Which animals to avoid? He didn't know. He didn't, he didn't even have to take notes, though. God just says, I'm going to give you some things, and here's what I want you to do. Just shut up and listen. Just listen. How often do we miss what God's trying to say because we just won't shut our mouth and listen? The first thing he says is, 
don't have any other gods before me. Moses couldn't do the things God, he couldn't turn one drop of water into blood like God did in Egypt. He couldn't change Pharaoh's heart. He could not part the Red Sea, but God could do that and more. And the grace of God was the only reason that Moses and millions of people are now free. Without God, they would still be walking in mud and forming bricks. They'd be getting whipped and commanded what to do. But God set them free, and he starts on the mountainside, this discourse. He starts by reminding Moses who he is and what he did for Moses when he says, Hey, Moses, all right, I'm going to write this down. You listen. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Before he says, don't have any other gods before me. He says, Moses, first words out of my mouth are this. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt, the place of your slavery. When he says, I am the Lord, the Lord there is Y-H-W-H, which is where we get our translation or transliteration of Yahweh or Jehovah, which at some point I think I might do a series on that too because there's some confusion sometimes in that and how we get to Jesus. But Jesus Christ, Jesus is the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is his name. And that Yahweh is transliterated to YHWH is transliterated Yahweh or Jehovah. And God revealed himself to Moses by name. He did this because he loves us enough and he wants to be in relationship with us. He knows our name and he reveals his name to them. And he says, here, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm Jehovah. And when he started by reminding them who he was and how he delivered them, God was not wanting the people to obey because they were afraid. He was wanting them to obey because they were thankful. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who delivered you out of your bondage. That was not meant to be, you, so you better love me. That was, hey, I'm the one who did. I'm here for, I'm, I'll give you my name. I'll tell you who I am. I'm wanting to see the ancient gods. They weren't interested in it. When you read ancient stories of the ancient gods in ancient Near East literature, gods would like, there was like accounts of gods killing humanity because humanity woke them up during a nap or something. Not true stuff, but just accounts. Here's a God that is going, I am not only the God, but the one who wants to be in relationship with you, and I want to reveal myself to you. We don't align our lives in obedience to God in 2022 because we're afraid of him. You know, I could do an end time series and talk about the things of Revelation and the, this and the blood and flying this and war and pestilence and famine. And then we get freaked out and try to get a bunch of people to come into church and serve God. And it works a lot, but that doesn't, that's, there's not staying power in that. I could freak my kids out until they're 18. But they're not going to be like, man, I'm looking. When they're not going to want to come home at 25 and say hi. And so God is not into this where he's like, yeah, I, want to, I just want to freak you out and make you love me. No, he says, I'm the, Lord, I'm the one who rescued you. Here's my name. I don't obey God because I'm afraid of what he might do to me if I don't. I obey him because I'm so thankful of what he's done for me and my family. I wish I had time. I could tell you, I could show you mug shots of my dad. He rewrote my dad's story. He was an alcoholic, drug addict, 
arrested over and over, woke up and he didn't know where his car was in the city. He, I mean, just crazy stuff. He owed drug dealers money. He was getting arrested for things, all kinds of stuff. And God got a hold of him. And he was living bound and addicted. Then God delivered him. He sat in a Bible study. He was baptized in Jesus' name, filled with his spirit. And guess what? Then God delivered him just as he did Israel out of Egypt. And as a result, I and my family can live in a place of promise with our children instead of a place of bondage like I would have and should have been living in until God stepped in. In Israel, they could have stayed there for 630, 1,030 years, but God delivered them out of a place of bondage and said, no, no, I'm calling you out of that and I have a place of promise over here. He He's still doing that today. He still does that today. He looks at people in bondage and says, to them, you can, you, no doubt, you, maybe yourself, or watching online, or maybe you know people, that you say, there's not much hope for them. Look at what they're doing. Look at the lifestyle they're living. And you say, man, I just don't know. You, don't, you think there was hope for them after 430 years? You know how many conversations were probably had around dinner tables about dreaming about freedom? And people say, yeah, it's not even, it's not even worth dreaming. We've been here for 400 years. Ain't nothing changing. Stop dreaming. It's not going to happen. But when someone says, no, no, I just, I dare to dream that if God is still alive and well, that we can still be delivered from any type of bondage at any point, at any time. And here in 2022, that still is the same way. No matter what bondage someone's living in, God can lead them out of bondage and into a place of promise. What has God done for you? What did he deliver you from? What did he do for your parents or your grandparents that has allowed you to walk in freedom or promise? He's given peace and chaos, joy and sorrow, victory and defeat. We can sing a duet with the psalmist when he said in Psalm 40 and 2, he says, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Or as Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.9, we're a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What do he do for you? No other gods could set the Israelites free, but that wasn't because there was a lack of candidates. Do you know the Egyptians served more than 2,000 gods. 2,000 gods. Nearly everything in Egypt was some type of a god to them. One god protected pregnant women. One god protected the king in battle. Another brought floods every year. One goddess protected needy people. Another swallowed the sun god at dusk every day and gave birth to him at dawn every morning. I mean, legit, this is, this is serious stuff. That was their God. And there's 2,000 of these. Why didn't the one true God set the record straight? Why didn't he compare himself to them? Why didn't he address his infinite power and their lack of power in his word? He could have beat him in an argument and proved himself. When you start your story like this, you don't really have to. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. 
God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. You don't really have to address the God of the sun when you say, yeah, I created the sun. You don't have to argue with the God of day and night when you say, yeah, I'm, I'm the one who separated the day and night. The Egyptians worshipped crocodiles, birds, snakes, turtles, frogs, dogs, cats, and more. Now, all the things God created, they were worshipping these things as gods. Like, you step on the cat's tail, and, you know, well, hey, that might have been great-grandma, you know what I mean? Like, every day, Israelites would hear Egyptians crying out to thousands of gods. They hung their hopes for every part of their life on each individual God. But also, the way they were, they were and, and for, you think about God, the one true God. God finally got to the point where they're not only treating his people poorly, but they're denigrating him as the one true God of not only the world, but of his people. So God sends a deliverer named Moses into Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh refuses to let his people go because Moses initially does not say, I want to take them and be free. He says, I want to come in, and I want to take them and go worship somewhere else and bring them back. That's a whole other message because true worship always includes distinction and separation. So God, he starts to pour out plagues upon the Egyptians, and those plagues result in eventual freedom. Freedom that took them to this moment at the base of this mountain, receiving these commands. You can understand why God would start with, don't have any other gods before me. You just came out of this place of 430 years, and I just want to make something clear. Number one, you don't need a God of the sun that swallows it up and gives birth in the morning. You don't need a God for pregnant women. You don't need a God for war. You don't need a God for water. You don't need a God for peace. I am. Remember, Moses said before he walked into Egypt, who am I supposed to say is sending me here? I got to know, are you the God of war? Are you the God of miracles? Are you the God of healing? Are you the God? I am. Well, what does that mean? You need a healing? I am. Need deliverance? I am. Need provision? I am. Need direction? I am. Need love, forgiveness? I am. And so... Even though that was not what their, their practice was in that time as they were leaving Egypt, that, it, it was the message society was pushing is he needed a God for every single thing. And that's the kids had grown up surrounded by this influence. And that's why years later, the nation of Israel is still occasionally turning back to false gods because they lived in Egypt, but they didn't do a good enough job separating themselves from Egypt. There's a message there too. We're living in this world. But when you say, I feel like I'm living a life with countercultural values, the minute you wake up and say, my values are no longer countercultural to the world I'm living in, that is when there is a humongous and significant problem in your life. Because scripture and what we see in society is against each other in many ways. And so I live a life that I certainly hope that I don't fit in every aspect of culture. And if Israel would have just followed these first words from God, they would have never tasted defeat at any moment in their lives. Do you know that? Just this first word. Don't have any other gods before me. If they would have just followed that, they would have never, ever tasted defeat. 
every time things went downhill for them, it was because they turned from God and put false gods in front of them. And very often that happened when they turned to relationships and were interested in someone that turned their face. But how does this all apply to us in 2022? We might not have things perfect. We might struggle at times in our faith. But I'm not aware of anyone here who bows down and worships alligators. I don't know. I know some of you like little kitty cats. Like, I can't stand cats. I'm so allergic to cats. If you have a cat, bless your heart, and that's wonderful. You can still be a member of this church and have a cat. Just please don't bring your cat to my house. But I doubt you worship the cat every morning. Anybody got a cat? It'd be weird to walk over to Jason's house in the morning. He's like bowing down in front of his cat. Like, Jason, what are you, dude, what are you doing? But Egypt, they did this. And when he said, don't have any other gods before me, the topic at hand was not necessarily the statue or the cat or the animal. or the. It was, the topic at hand was worship. What do you value the most? Where do you put the most emphasis? Who or what is given the highest place in your life. We often get caught up worshiping other gods too, but just not the same as the Egyptians. Over the years, we'll give a little practical before I wrap up here. and Hopefully you guys will all still love me after this. Over the years of youth ministry in Wisconsin and now as a lead pastor, I've seen a lot of godly parents take their kids to basketball, baseball, band, volleyball, soccer. And these same parents sometimes will tell me how busy they are, how the church drive to the church is too far, how it costs money to quiz and it's hard to get them to practice. How they don't have time to get involved in ministry, how it's tough to make it to church on time, but they never are late to a child's game. Really be quiet. I didn't think I was going to have a lot of amens. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with sports. I know some people disagree with that. I don't have a problem with that. My kids play sports. I know you want your child to be active and involved, exercising, learning life lessons. You learn a lot of life lessons on, on the sporting diamond or field or court. But when these things take precedent over the things of God, we have to go back and ask, our, ask ourselves, the questions I just posed. What do you value the most? Where do you put the most emphasis? What is given the highest place in your life? See, my son Jude, and I'll wrap up with just a couple stories here. My son Jude was sad to miss his very first basketball game this season because we had a Bible quiz tournament. He was also sad one year when we tried to sign him up for flag football and we found out that the games were on Sunday afternoons and Oh, wait, we can make Sunday afternoon. Our service is Sunday morning. This was before our Sunday Sundays were out in the afternoons. I said, no, nah, man, I refuse to rush away from an altar call to get to a football game. With each decision that we make, we communicate worship to our children. Even Sunday school teachers and Rock Academy and Rock Church when the little ones look and they don't see their teachers worshiping or at an altar 
or coming to a Wednesday night service. We might think they don't notice, but I promise you, they notice. Our children quickly learn what we value the most. And then they tend to pattern their lives after our lives. We once had to move a whole, another time my kids played sports, we had to move to a whole new team because the coach chose the night of practice and he chose Wednesday nights. And I said, we're never going to miss a church service for a Wednesday night practice. Now I know many of you say, well, of course you can't. You're a pastor. You can't do that. I guess I could. It'd be kind of weird for you guys. Where is he? Jude's got basketball practice. But folks, I want you to know this is the way my mom and dad raised me, and I wouldn't be changing it whether or not I was a pastor. If your children make the team but miss heaven, they lose no matter how many championship trophies they win. Because we have to ask ourselves, what is the ultimate goal? What is the ultimate goal? And yes, I want my kids to have education. I want, I want hardworking, good job, provider. Like I want all these things that I think are really good. But at the end of the day, everything I choose when it comes to employment, sports, and education, everything is what is going to set my kids up the best to make heaven their home. I've seen men and women sign up for more overtime and less prayer meetings, wake up earlier and go to bed for bigger paychecks and do the same for championship games, out-of-town guests, and papers due for school. And as I see this, I think about God speaking to a man on the side of a mountain going, the first thing I can tell you is don't prioritize anything more than me. It's not just the alligator, a cat, a statue. It is what do you worship? What do you prioritize? Because what you prioritize is what you worship. And so tonight as we close this out and we stand at our feet, I think just it's it's a good time to just find a place to pray and to just examine ourselves and go, okay, where am I? What, what do I prioritize? What do I worship? Where do I put the most emphasis in my life? Where does the, where does the time, the schedule point to and the pocketbook point to? Like what is, what, where are my greatest priorities? My son, oh, so he scored 10 points the last two basketball games. You better believe I'm coaching the basketball team. You better believe I'm telling Did y'all see him? <laughs> yeah. I'm proud of my boy. But if somebody recruits him to an AAU team and he looks like, man, I don't think he doesn't really have the height and the build, but let's just pretend. Oh, wow. He starts taking off in athletics. Do you know that he's playing really well and I think I was talking to Kevin and Brandon about this. I said, man, there's a, there's a team. They're looking. I, I, one, a guy I know was looking for fourth grade boys to play on a traveling team. You have to try out to make it. And I was like, 
man, he's been doing pretty well. And we were talking because Carson's been doing incredibly well, too. And so has Wyatt. And so I was talking to the dads, like, man, we almost, I almost wonder if I should call them up maybe and just see if they could. And right off the bat, I said to, I said to them, I said, I just, traveling team, I just, when are you going to travel? Believe me, my son's got my blood. <laughs> if I let him, he'd play 11 sports a year. I always, my parents, if they'd have let me play, I'd have played two at the same time all year long. But I had a dad that said, Gary, we're going to keep our priorities in line. And I never, I played softball, I played a hardball, little league, all these things. And I never, ever, never in my entire life do I remember, do I remember ever joining a league and missing a church service for a game. And so I say this to just say, I know it's one of those things in American culture. The minute you start challenging something about a parenting decision, people, oh, you ain't going to tell me what raised my kids. I know I can say anything about your kids, and you're going to make your own decision. Like, I, I know that. And I know sometimes people look at me and say, you still have young kids. I'll listen to you more when I see how yours turn out. Fair enough. We'll see what happens. Join with me in prayer because I pray for them regularly. But I know you're going to, you're, you're going to make your own decision. You're going to justify whatever it is that you want. All I'm asking is that in humility you will find a place to pray if you have kids especially. And go, God, what message of worship are you sending to my kids? If my kids, if we called your kids up right now, so what, what's the most important thing in mom's life? What's the most important thing in daddy's life? I hope every one of the kids downstairs right now would say, oh, he, he or she loves Jesus so much. They just want to grow with God. They just love the Lord. They love the people of God. They just want to, they just love the church. Maybe on our way home we can ask him, hey, what do you think is the most important thing in mom and dad's life? I think you get a pass if they say your spouse. That's cool too. But what do you worship? Let's just find a place and talk to God about this and look at this for our own selves and our own lives right now. We just talk to him and say, God, what's the message I'm sending? If you don't have kids, what's the message you're sending to the children and students of this church who look up to you? Jesus, help us. We don't want to worship anybody more than you, not anything more than you. We want you to be first and foremost in our lives above everyone and everything, God. We, want to, we just want you to be elevated higher than anything. Live a life that shows that too to the world and especially to those close to us. We want to grow with you, Jesus.
I'd rather 